This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Plum, a money management app and one-stop destination for managing your personal finances. Looking after your finances doesn't need to be complicated. And with Plum, it's easier than ever to take control of your money situation, no matter what your situation is. Using automated tools, Plum allows you to manage your money with minimal effort, whether that's saving money, opening a pension, or comparing and switching your energy bill and insurance providers. As you probably know, when it comes to pensions, the most important thing is to start one as early as possible. And with Plum's new self-invested personal pension, you can actually consolidate all your existing pensions in one place, which is great if you've got a few different pensions from various employers. And you can choose from a range of different investment funds for your pension, including a fund that aims to deliver an ethical financial return by investing in shares of companies that meet positive carbon and environmental criteria. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Please note, your capital is at risk if you choose to invest. Thank you very much to Plum. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otegi Ragba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence, my professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can buy it now in hardback, ebook and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. On today's show, I'm speaking to Yomi Adagoke, a multi-award-winning journalist and author who writes about race, feminism, popular culture and how all those things intersect, as well as class, politics and, to balance things out, her lifelong love of reality TV. Besides having columns in both Vogue and The Guardian, and regularly interviewing everyone from Issa Rae to Jordan Dunn for cover features, Yomi is also the co-author of Slay in Your Lane, The Black Girl Bible, an inspirational guide to life for black British women, a book often imitated but never replicated, and whose success has paved the way for a series of follow-up titles, including Slay in Your Lane, The Journal, and most recently, Loud Black Girls, an anthology of black British writing featuring essays from the voices of 20 established and emerging black British writers. Yomi is also a dear, dear friend of mine, so this episode of the show is pretty raucous, to put it lightly, but I loved having this conversation because she is also one of the smartest and most nuanced thinkers I know. We chatted about the emotional significance of Yomi buying her own home earlier this year, as well as the many responsibilities that come with being a homeowner, her changing class identity, and how her upbringing shaped her relationship with money, 
the shame of being middle class and the cultural reluctance to admit to class privilege, as well as the differences in the black British experience when you're either middle class or working class. Yomi also shared some brilliant insights into the practicalities and, yes, challenges of buying a home as a self-employed person. And we finished things off with a broader discussion about career anxiety and how that's prompted Yomi to think about her long-term career strategy. Lots of interesting stuff there, as I'm sure you'll agree. So without further ado, here's Yomi. The first thing I want to talk about, or in fact, the main thing I want to talk about even, is the phenomenal article you wrote for Vogue a few months ago about class and gentrification and how the fact you became a homeowner recently made you reckon with your changing class identity and like first of all let's talk about how rare it is which you talk about in the in the essay how rare it is for you as a black millennial self-employed woman to buy a property on her own no financial assistance from their parents like you shared some stats in the article only 31% of UK millennials own a property home ownership rates for black Africans are among the lowest in the UK I think it's 20% you're a woman, which obviously means your salary is just automatically lower and you can't get as big a mortgage. And you're freelance, which is yes. <laughs> in itself a shit show. Right. <laughs> How did you feel on that day when you completed, when you bought your home? Oh my God. I think I felt way more emotional than I thought I would because I've only ever really lived out of a room. So my childhood bedroom, my room at university, and then when I moved in with my sister, a bedroom there. I've never had more than like a few meters of space to sort of truly call my own. And even then in certain circumstances, such as my childhood home, it was shared because me and my sister shared a room. So firstly, I think I was just very overwhelmed emotionally because I was just like, this feels utterly surreal as you mentioned in the article I'd said like it's no exaggeration to say I'd been saving broadly with the hopes of buying a property since I was 15 so you know that's quite literally like half of my life so for it to actually sort of come to fruition was very emotionally overwhelming and surprisingly so but also I think on a practical level I was just kind of like, well, wait, hang on now. So wait, this is all my responsibility. <laughs> me who like, okay, Otega, let's be real. You know me properly. So like, <laughs> You're a bimbo. Sis, I'm a whole bimbo. <laughs> so literally I'm sat there like, builders are being like, yeah, if you could just show us to where the fuse box is. I'm like, okay, but honey, what is a fuse box? Let's start with that. <laughs> How about that? Like, what is a fuse box? Then we can get to, when you tell me what that shit is, then I can get to showing you that. But yeah, like it was just a lot. But also like, oh my God, showing my parents. Oh, oh they were so proud of me. And you know how begrudging Nigerian parents are with pride. It's all behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> so just seeing them so happy was just like, oh, it was just everything, man. That's so true what you said about it being the first time you've ever had a space of your own. Because that's exactly the same as me. Like only ever lived out of a room, shared a bedroom with my sisters growing up. And I, I mean, we're the same even, person. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we I mean, we discussed this. Like, we literally yeah. had the same identical lives. Like, even right down to something like sharing a bedroom. Like, I didn't know if that was your situation as well. So it's yeah. just like all of that. But like, yeah, it's, there's just something really, I don't want to be corny, but like really magical about just like walking around these square meters and being like, I'm in control of this entire space. If I put something down, it's still going to be there you know, when I come back in 24 hours to pick up, which is usually the washing up. But, you know, it's really, really (laughs) liberating. But something you talk about in the article is, you know, so you're middle class now, but (laughs) you didn't necessarily grow up middle class. (laughs) 
Look at us. (laughs) How do you feel about that? Oh God, it's a weird one. Like it's really weird because it's something I'm so reluctant and then simultaneously grateful to kind of identify with and occupy. And just the cognitive dissonance that we can like really just experience in terms of, I mean, me and you joke about it all the time in terms of like having expensive taste (laughs) and being like, you know, genuinely sitting there spending, like it's genuinely such a privilege like to be able to spend certain amounts on things, on things that you like and be like, oh, I like this type of clothes and bags and, you know, shoes in your case, bags in my case and being able to spend that money and then still be able to ensure that, you know, you're able to buy a property, you're able to renovate that those properties as we're doing and then walk away from it still being financially stable and comfortable it is a mindfuck and whilst doing all of that it was basically what like I got the keys to my flat and was I suppose I'm middle class after a Russell group education after a career in the media for like how many years I was like after a fucking book deal I was like okay I suppose this is what really (laughs) tips the scales and it's like come on for the past how undeniable Yeah, it's been undeniable, you know. But you said just now that you're slightly reluctant to identify as that. Why is that the case? Because, I mean, I've said before, I think, again, you know, speaking to identical lives and experiences, like, I already had certain middle-class signifiers anyway, so my both my parents are educated. I'm not by any means the first person in my family to go to university. My sister was a journalist, but we had severe money problems, like, to the point where, you know, it was like, coming back from school and my parents will kill me for bringing this up but like coming back from school and like literally having to kind of like make sure that bailiffs weren't at the door like that kind of like rising anxiety of coming back and being like oh god like I might be the person that if I get home first I might like be the person who like comes in contact with bailiffs and stuff and just I just have such vivid memories of my mum like counting up like money before we got to the till at Sainsbury's so I always look back and go why were we shopping at Sainsbury's again <laughs> We didn't right, have the money to. I was shopping at Lidl, so I'm um, right. Anyway, but. <laughs> but yeah, like my dad was, but my mum was really trying to cling to that middle class identity. <laughs> but yeah, I had those signifiers, but we didn't have pee like that. So it was very much like that was a really big part of my childhood, Otega, like really big. Like when people talk about, I think most, lots of people, especially now with the current conversations we're having around race, their biggest kind of anxieties were like, I was the only black in the village. I was the only this. For me, like, yeah, that was a part of it. But my biggest thing was being broke. And that really shaped, we might talk about it later, but I think you're aware that I have like an addiction to saving. Like I'm very financially conscious because I am so afraid of ending up back in that space and situation. So now for that not to be an issue in the same way as it was, the kind of, I suppose, reality of growing up still heavily, like the shadow of that is heavy, like in my psyche. And also just, I guess I still live in the area that I grew up. I've always had like, I guess there is a real black British working class culture, which I've always been heavily embedded in. So it's difficult to kind of extricate myself from that identity which I feel is the only identity really I've had that wholly encompasses me because I've never felt really British I've never really felt fully Nigerian I've always felt a little bit of something but black British working class identity is something I've wholly owned and then now it's like "Mm, actually you're bougie now I'm like oh okay that's a new one (laughs) you know Mm. we don't really have I mean even despite how obsessed with it we are in this country, we really don't have nuanced discussions about class, especially when you add race into that dynamic. There's a lot of pressure to identify as either working class or middle class, even if you straddle the two, you've transitioned from one to the other. 
And then something that irritates me sometimes is that people downplay their class background a lot. What, like, how do you feel about that? Like, when you observe that, what do you think of it? But why do you think they do it? It's so fascinating. Oh, because we have such a weird relationship with class in this country. It's so, and we've obviously spoken about it at length, but it's so interesting to just watch because I don't even know, actually, I was going to say I don't know how conscious it is, but I do think it's probably more conscious than I do give people credit for because obviously we have a very strange relationship with class in the UK that in many ways, you know, venerates the upper class and middle classes, but then simultaneously denigrates them. And middle class is like kind of an identity that you're allowed to kind of take the piss out of. And there's, mm. it's of not course, cool. It's not very cool. advantageous. Exactly that. That is, you've now on head, right? It's literally not cool at all, but it is very, very advantageous. And I feel like, but then, you know what I'd say in the black community, however, being like traditionally middle class in terms of having grown up with money and gone to private school isn't necessarily considered like cool but being like new wave middle class as somebody who's kind of just like gotten themselves on the ladder there is I think a sort of grace that we have within the black community for we're quite I guess because we don't really see those images of like aspiration to the same degree as we do within the white community I do think we kind of have a sort of lenience maybe for like those you know what I mean within the wider culture Absolutely, for seeing yeah. like black girls getting it on Instagram and like you know being you know we're all about people being in love our bag, that yeah, right they live definitely. for it look at like we spoke about how our like home ownership posts were like because we've done it ourselves those are like our li- most liked posts on Instagram and I think it is because we're like young black women that despite mate whatever unis we went to whatever like privileges we've had in this life did stump up every goddamn last coin cobble shekel <laughs> ourselves <laughs> so yeah i think though like outside of that though there is a real tetchiness about what the privileges of being middle class or having grown up middle class mean for what you've achieved and people feel that you know admitting that you know I don't know your parents had like proximity to a certain industry or xyz in some way devalues what you've achieved and whilst I wouldn't say devalues it most certainly shifts the context in which you've achieved it I think people feel weird about that right they feel like you're taking something from them Mm, definitely I couldn't agree more and I think there's also a real conflation of the experiences which again is something that you mentioned in the piece a real conflation of the experiences of the black working class with the black middle class within the UK. And you talked about that with reference specifically to black maternity mortality rates and black victims of coronavirus. Could you just kind of get into that a little bit? Because I don't think what you're about to say is something that people are really aware of or really think about a lot, but I think it's really important to recognise. Absolutely. So I think a lot of that, that thought I was having around that conflation, actually a lot of it, was sort of shaped through conversations we'd had, especially during sort of like last year, when I suppose conversations regarding racism, not just in the US, but in the UK globally, were sort of really coming to the fore. And it was interesting the way they sort of took place. Like, I think I was talking to you about the idea that racism could be solved by buying lots of books and by lining like I suppose educating yourself and simultaneously like I suppose lining the pockets of black authors which of course is an important thing to do in terms of the education aspect of it but I took I suppose umbrage at the the framing of it as though like black authors who are largely a middle-class group of people were inherently disenfranchised financially and that Mm. that was the only kind of valuable 
even relevant recourse, if that makes sense. Because I feel mm. like you are genuinely one of the few people I can categorically say is like, truly owns their experience and I think there are even elements of your experience that I feel like wow people that like I don't know people who I hope you don't mind me saying like for instance you had a scholarship right to private school and I feel like there are lots of people on social media that would like have that in their bio to really hone in on the fact that like I am not your typical private school person like Mm. I got in on via scholarship right and I feel like but you wholly own like your privileges and are very kind of open about them in a way that I don't think many people are and I think when it comes to like black middle-class people blackness is considered synonymous with disadvantage even in a financial kind of sense which isn't always the case because redistribution of wealth is key in terms of the black community but I don't personally see my personal self (laughs) do you know what I mean literally designer bags in tow as part of necessarily being the person (laughs) that needs I'm trust me I'm literally like one purchase away from being (laughs) cancelled because I'm just like you know I'm just very like whatever about it but like I don't see that as necessarily being like me because I think the lack of differentiation between myself and black women or black people that live in my area, Thornton Heath, that are literally like on benefits or on flipping like zero hour contracts, there is no difference within the discourse. And I don't think Twitter helps because I think people right now, we are looking at this race to the bottom in terms of who is more disenfranchised than who. And the more disenfranchised you are, the more you get to speak. So people don't like to let go of the reality of like, I'm hugely privileged. Privilege isn't just white. Like it's not just Mm. white privilege. I'm financially privileged. I'm privileged in terms of being able-bodied. I'm privileged in terms of being straight. There are lots of ways in which I'm privileged. So I feel that when I was bringing up the thing about coronavirus, it was very distressing to me to see people discussing the rates at which ethnic minorities were dying at the hands of coronavirus as if it was something that would affect me or you or even themselves. It was a very blue tick Twitter. I say it like I'm not part of blue tick Twitter, but it was a very blue tick Twitter take to be like, oh my God, like we are dying. And it's like, no, black cab drivers are dying. Black frontline workers are dying. You working from home, writing articles for flipping The Guardian is not (laughs) affected by this statistic. Infant mobility rates, there was a real invisibilization, for lack of a better phrase, of how refugees and migrant women who were really big casualties of the very distressing rates of maternal mobility within the black community. There just was no conversation. It was very largely people who are less likely to be victims of those rates, but happened to be black that were kind of discussing it without referencing that very important point. So I think for me, it's just about understanding that yes, being like a racial minority is in and of itself a form of disenfranchisement in this country. But simultaneously, I've written an essay about it in a book called of our country, which will be coming out later in the year in October, I wrote about the fact that my first run-ins, my first real run-ins with class and class identity was going to university with millionaire Nigerians. That was my first kind of reckoning really? with class. And they were black. Yeah, they were black. And I was like, they're suffering from racism newly because they didn't in Nigeria. But to sit there and be like, oh, they're inherently... Because I'd be looking at like rare recruitment scheme. I don't know if you remember that rare recruitment, right? And they'd be like, oh, we're here to like, you know, create this pipeline of black graduates and but they were speaking to very middle class Russell group. Honey, millionaire Freshie's child. I was like, those yeah. people, I was like, they're going to be fine. <laughs> like yeah. these billionaires kids. Like, sorry. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I get that there's, let's not in any way act as though racism is not a very pertinent issue. But at the same time, so is 
finances. Let's not pretend a child that grew up in free school's meals and a single parent household that's black is the same as whoever from Leckie Island coming over <laughs> from an international boarding school. Like right. they're very different experiences. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really important that we just kind of shine a bit of a light on that because like you say, I think maybe not always deliberately, but maybe it's just kind of slight ignorance. And then other times it is more deliberately, but I think sometimes some people use that to their advantage and claim experiences that are not their own. So like I'm something that I did in the book and because I had the space to was kind of very slowly kind of taught through the different facets of my identity as it relates to class and money. But the thing that I like, I will never say that I'm working class, even though I did grow up on a council estate and we didn't have money when I was growing up because like you, I wasn't the first person in my family to go to university. I didn't even know university was optional till I got to like <laughs> my teenage years. Like it was like, you're going to uni and that's that. I didn't know that lots of books and culture and all of that stuff at home. My parents are very well educated. Okay, technically, yes, I'm a council estate kid, but I know that that people assume certain things based on that label that do not apply to me. So I think it's really important that we talk about that. And it's very honest. And that's why I appreciate that you do that, because people take those signifiers. And I mean, as you said, it's not always intentionally, but sometimes it is intentionally to be able to speak on behalf of people that they don't actually have that many common experiences with. Like at uni, I'd always say, the freshies had more in common with the rich white lacrosse kids. And just because we're both black and Nigerian, there's no point pretending that our experiences were that intricately linked. There were, of course, similarities in our experiences, but they were privileged beyond my imagination. And the kind of conflation of y'all are all the same just felt very like, especially in the conversations around privilege and stuff, it felt slightly, not exploited. It felt like it was like, kind of like, oh, that's useful. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting that you say that now because I've just remembered some, a memory that I just kind of completely forgot. But like during my second year, after my second year of university during the summer, I did an internship, which was kind of like a civil service kind of mini kind of fast stream thing. Mm. And it was specifically directed at recruiting black and ethnic minority, you know, students. Mm. And everyone who did it was like, just at like top tier universities and really posh like I remember like a friend of mine did it and he's black he went to the most expensive boarding school in the country and then he went to Oxford but I knew that the people organizing the scheme saw him being there as progress and I was like that guy's going to be fine no matter what then he has gone on to do very well for himself in the way that being extremely upper middle class allows and I just remember thinking this isn't quite right. Like I didn't, obviously I was grateful for the opportunity, but I remember even at the time being like, I don't feel like they've quite set out to achieve what it is they wanted to achieve here because they've conflated race with class and privilege and access in a way that just isn't accurate. But yeah, anyway, just kind of want to move on a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of like your upbringing and you talked about, you know, the fact that money was tight that that obviously led to some anxieties about money when you were growing up, which is exactly the same thing as me. That's the only reason that I saved up, I think, during my, like, 20s is because I was so angry. I always say that I wasn't saving money, I was hoarding it. Like, sis, <laughs> just like a Nigerian, of course you were hoarding right, it. <laughs> sitting there on my piles of cash, literally <laughs> watching. Honestly, like, it really wasn't, like... 
it almost felt like it wasn't coming from a healthy place. Like savings, right. obviously, very good financial practice, but like for me, it tipped over into just like I was never like tight. And that's nothing cultural. I was never like tight or stingy with other people, mm. but I was tight and stingy with myself. Right. And I'm curious whether it's conscious or subconsciously. What did you learn from your parents and your childhood about money? Like, was money something? that you discussed openly at home? Were there lessons kind of passed down to you about how to handle money or no? Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. So I think there are really two types of people that grow up with like money issues in terms of how you turn out. You either turn out like me and you, which is like addicted to savings, like the fact you said hoarding, like the accuracy, because it really was not coming from a healthy place. It's like when you read about African dictators and it's like, we found 13 trillion pounds, not even Naira, pounds, like literally <laughs> hidden in the floorboards. And you're thinking, what, For what? what could you even possibly? But it's like the mentality, like I sit there and I go, hmm got to hear both sides <laughs> I kind of relate to their madness because I'm like that's me like You're I've always <laughs> I've always saved more than like I've ever needed and I think you either become anxious and you look at like I know I frustrate my friends actually when I talk about my savings I think one of the you you're again because I'll like even our journey to home ownership was so similar in terms of, I hope you don't mind me saying, us having to have like big deposits because we yeah, didn't yeah, okay. have like, do you know what I mean? Like we yeah. didn't have the, because um, our mortgages were going to be lower because obviously we're freelance. Like when I talk about my savings, I will sound insane because I look at like the average person's savings and then I'd look at what I had to stump up for the flat and I talk about it like it was like I had 36 pence to my name, even though they'd be like mad amounts of money. Me. <laughs> Because Sis, the so way scared. I was stressed about being Listen. broke, especially in my mid and late 20s. Meanwhile, I had tens of thousands of pounds sitting in the Listen. bank Listen. and I was crying over money. Listen, but you saying that to the untrained ear, it's like, oh, well, here they go. And it's like, no, seriously, if you've grown up with like, just like, a, I don't even know, like a strange, difficult, strained relationship with money, if you've had to go without at times, you don't know what a healthy relationship with money looks like so you think you need a billion pounds to make it to the next week like you don't understand that like people are living with like a hundred quid in their savings account and a fine and you just don't mm. realize it because like you've had no kind of base to understand what a normal amount to live off looks like so I think you either become like that or you become like quite a few people I know that like just don't give a shit and kind of continue the same cycle of just being like well I survived without like money growing up and like they're still quite like flippant with it and and like they kind of repeat those patterns both of which like kind of outcomes I think are like difficult and often unhealthy but like in terms of what I learned it was just me looking at like debt and like credit card stuff so to this day I don't have a credit card even though I have been advised a million times to get one but it's because of that anxiety of like seeing like oh, this letter's come through and it says that, like, you know, this is owed. And obviously that's all cleared up now, like, praise the Lord, and it's all fine now, but it was such a part of my childhood that it meant that I learned in opposition to, and it was kind of like, okay, I can't ever have bailiffs come to my house. I can't ever, like, be in the red for anything. And these, as I said, were people that are, like, very educated, very brilliant, raised, like, three, like, very, like, intelligent kids that have, like, gone on to do great things. But just with that financial literacy, like, it just, it wasn't there. And also, it's also the kind of immigrant experience. Like, I think, right. you know, what translates, like, my class state has changed from when we moved from right. Nigeria to... London and there are all sorts of factors that go into that like I'm not even gonna get to that racism mm. is a big one like Listen. there's so many immigrants that come to this country they were doctors and 
scientists, whatever, and you know, mm. back home, and then they come here and they're doing very low-level jobs, right? Because this country does not recognise their qualifications, and there's bias and all sorts of things. So I think that's also worth huge part saying is like I think why a lot of immigrant families right. their finances just not necessarily in the shape right. you expect. Absolutely that, and that's the thing because it's like. I mean, it was interesting because I suppose like when you even bring race into it, right? So I went to a school that was like very strange in Purley where Croydon's got an enormous catchment area. So you really got like millionaire, like Pakistani girls that lived on Millionaire's Road. That's literally the name of the place in Purley. And then you got like council estate kids, you got travellers, you got like, and they were all different races. So you got like really rich middle-class black kids, really rich middle-class white kids, really poor estate white kids, really poor estate black kids and, and everyone in between. And it was interesting that like, obviously, as I said, my parents were like educated, but they were still like having financial problems that like, I'd say like, lots of white students that I met that basically like their parents that say they were like working in let me think like more blue collar professions or something Mm. like builders and taxi drivers they were all fine financially and that's that's where that literacy like I think just was very different and like I just remember it being like a lot of my childhood despite being fucking perfect not changing it for the world everything was great love my family but like just financial anxiety shaping me so heavily that like I honestly, it sounds crazy, but I'm like, would I change it? Because if I did, I don't know if I'd have been able to buy a flat because it's the anxiety, as sad as yeah. it is, it's the anxiety that means that like, I was saving at uni. I was that basically to me is stealing actually from myself. Mad. That's, <laughs> that is actually mad. I was not uni. saving at uni. Like I was, was that student load would come into my account and I would trot down Lipsy. Do you remember Motel and the ground Motel, in the basement honey. of Topshop? I had every... <laughs> Every season, so, you drop, oh, I'd be buying myself man. a new dress. Oh, I miss time. her. I'm like, oh, I was such a tight little body. I was like, oh, she was snatched. I can't. I miss her. No, but it's it's totally true. Like, I feel like for me, that kind of upbringing and background has been like a real gift in that yeah. it encouraged me to be very financially sensible and savvy. And like you say, I'm like, okay, fine. It's kind of come with this anxiety, but I don't know whether without that anxiety I would have got into lots of credit card debt and wouldn't have saved anything. So I'm like, it's all kind of come out in the wash. But yeah, it's an interesting one. A quick word from our episode sponsor, Plum. I already mentioned that the Plum app is brilliant for helping you set and achieve your savings goals. But did you know about their excellent money maximizer tool? It makes calculating your monthly budget so much easier by taking into account your salary, balance and any bills and subscriptions you might have and giving you a weekly allowance until your next payday so you know your limits and can track your spending without having to faff around with lots of complicated budgets download the plum app for free now and try it out for yourself and now back to the show i want to talk about the practicalities of house buying especially as a self-employed person, which, as Mm. we've both kind of mentioned, makes it a lot. I don't want to put anyone off who's self-employed and listening to this, but it is just more complicated. It is more complex. And you have to start thinking about it further in advance because for someone who works a nine-to-five job, you just have to give three months' worth of pay slips, I think, is how the mortgage people, the lenders, check your affordability. Now, if you're self-employed, I was bringing out accounts from two years before, (laughs) three years before, predictions, forecasts, letterhead, you know, signed from my accountant. I was bringing in, you know, letters from my publisher saying, oh, she's got a deal that's this much. It was a nightmare. Like, I'm actually just going to say it. 
It was nightmare. horrendous. And especially when it's like one year, it's like, oh, okay, you've got a book deal. You've earned a couple of tens of thousands this year. And the year before you earned £3.65. Like, it's <laughs> proper like, <laughs> like... Three comma in my bank account. I was, oh, the way I had to be buns, like, like... Honestly, the way I had to be like, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> I was like, I was like, my income's very up and down. It evens out. And it's like, obviously Listen. they don't give a shit so heck (laughs) i had to use a broker i had a really sick accountant (laughs) like got there in the end but for you i'm curious like what was the most difficult or unexpected part of the home buying process right through from not necessarily mortgage but like even the searching and stuff like that like is there anything you'd have done differently oh gosh you know what? I think the house buying process is like, I'm like semi like a lapsed Christian. I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe I've got, maybe I should have a cheeky stint back in church to thank God because it was truly because of his grace that this shit came together. Like, honestly, I was like, hmm, maybe the Bible made some points <laughs> because oh God. God, like I was, it was a pure miracle. So obviously I had my savings and I knew I'd saved like way beyond average for my deposit so I was like this is going to be a piece of piss so when I went to the lenders I was like ready for these people to be like especially because like so again it's that lack of literacy I had no understanding or proximity to the home buying process I have friends who have bought houses but I'd never I just thought it was literally I've got the money like you guys give me it's the rest of it and we're good to go so I didn't think that me being freelance honestly would affect the process as much as like Martin Mm. Money Saver Lewis man said it would I didn't believe I was just like oh it's gonna be fine because I've got such a big deposit then I get the mortgage offer and I have like a budget and basically like what they're offering me is like I need to find 20,000 pounds to like get the flat that I want and it was like one of those things where I had saved such a, again, why, you know, when you're kind of like, would you do anything differently? Would things have panned out the same way if you didn't have these anxieties? Like I kind of had such anxiety around needing such an enormous sum. This was even when I was in full-time work that like, I happened to be able to have that extra 20, but for a really long time, I was like, this is like, my mortgage was very low. So I will say it, like I've told you, like I have like 43% 43% equity in my house. Like it's mad. Is it 43? Like, it's 43, babe. It's 43. Oh, it's all coming out. Shit, like, man. honey, that's what I'm like, that goddamn, like, freehold of mine. Like, I'm literally just like, it's mad. Like, I have 43%. You're going to pay that off in no time. I knew that you had a big deposit, but I, d- I genuinely did not realise it was... I had no choice. Yeah, I had yeah, no choice yeah. because genuinely they were like, you need to put, like, this is all we can give you. And I was like, Father God in heaven. I had it, but I didn't want to spend it because obviously, like, I'm doing like a big renovation. So I was just like, thank God I have this money. But then obviously I have my anxieties around savings and stuff. And obviously I still need to be able to have savings after it and all that. X, Y, Z. So that was big stress and obviously you know as well as I do I'm telling my mum this telling my dad this they're doing oh rah that's bad you know sorry about it like well, they, well, they don't have 20k to just give me so they were just like oh that's kind of te- techie skill kind of peak like, find some- kind of peak to be honest that's it like bro what are they gonna do so they were just like well you know it is what it is but I found it and it was calm so you know I was so specific with criteria which is why mm-hmm. I genuinely think it was a miracle because I was like it needs to be three minutes from the station it needs to be three minutes from my sister it needs to be bottom floor 
wheelchair accessible, all these things. I was like, these are non-negotiables. And like, I cannot believe that I found it. But I looked at maybe about 15 different flats. I looked at Bear, Otega. I looked at Bear. And it's mad because I was talking to you and I was talking to my friend Boston. Shout out to Boston. I was like, you know what? Like, I was just looking at any flats and you guys were really making me see the bigger picture of like, okay, but are you sure? We were. I will take credit for that. Hey, y'all were on my neck, stressing me the fuck out. I was like, you're not buying that flat. You were like, yeah, but have you thought about this? Like, oh, but hmm, if I were you, and I was like, are y'all going to find me that? Like, I was like, where's this money that you people are talking about? You were so right, because like, this is obviously now a place I can see myself in forever, really. Like, I just fucking love it. But like, even when it comes to things like, so the people basically on my street, they'd bought their place for, I think it was 60 grand. Like, and this is like a street of like identical like houses, mate. And when I say they bought theirs for 60 grand more than mine, like, because I visited it, they're my neighbours, and I was like, okay, like, I can see why, because obviously theirs is, like, massively done up, it's beautiful. Mine now, this, I what did I say to you? I said, I, I've bought a crack den. I was like, this is a whole crack den. And Thank I thought God you were exaggerating, and then you <laughs> showed me that video of the carpet. Honey, I was like... The carpet! But that's the thing, because thank God it was that all, bad. it was like sh- no structural, like perfect condition yeah, all cosmetic. structure, all cosmetic. But then that has been like, I think I'm even supposed to be talking about the hardest bits, but the best bit, I was like, I don't want to do renovation. I just want to move in somewhere that's like perfect. Doing this renovation, my God, being able to say, fuck it, I want a yellow ceiling. Who going to start me, boo? <laughs> oh my God. I have never felt so, like, it's mad. I, like, my house is me. Like, I'm looking at it, like, everyone's like, oh my God, your house is so kooky. I'm like, oh my God, right? Just like me. Like, oh, so random. Like, oh, yeah, I, I yellow forgotten. ceiling. For people listening to this, Yomi had a phase as a kooky, quirky black girl. <laughs> phase, honey. Who said I'm gone? I don't have hair. I'm like, baby, I'm still in my quirky bag. That's true. That is true. Don't I just, let the girls remember, fool you. I remember discovering that and just, it was the, it was the blue braid extensions. Oh my god, like, the septum. Huh? The septum. And the septum piercing. May I used to just flip it up. Because that's what I knew when I had my septum. I just used to flip it up. Did you? Yes, babe. It just it just literally fell out. Like I think God just said it's enough and it just fell out. My Bro. my belly bar fell out. <laughs> All the, I'm not joking. Everything dropped out the same year. <laughs> oh god. god said it's enough. You but anyway, a I'm a mess. I know. But yeah, like honestly, the renovation. I'm so excited for you because I know you're doing that too. And it's like I'm not having to ask anybody anything. Mm. And like, it's just mine. Like, it's just mm. my place. And I can do what the hell I want. And no, it's no negotiation. I'm negotiating with myself. And I'm just like, oh yeah, I think I'm going to do this. And that's that. And it's just amazing. So it's been really hard. Because as we all know, I am a bimbo. So I'm literally like, what's primer? Like, I don't know what, like, I'm like, is it like makeup primer? It's you put it on the wall so... first? That's, well, that's basically what it is, isn't it? It is, right? That's how okay. I'm, that's how I'm understanding it. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's been, I mean, you've spoken to me about like, <laughs> then ones that you're just like, oh, sometimes being, doing up strong independent woman where the blinds aren't working and you're like, oh, oh damn God. it. You know, I had I to get be... two guy friends to come around and fix that for me because <laughs> I just couldn't do it myself. I just, oh it needed God. two people Slash Listen, one of those people needed to not be needed me, so to be a bloke. two other people, <laughs> and you're like, it. you know what? Like honestly, literally down with the patriarchy and all of that. But <laughs> literally, my you know Nelson, my friend Nelson Abbey, I literally would be calling up that man at all hours, doing okay. So fuse box, which one is it again? What's the gas cylinder? If you could tell me, because and they've all been, it's been great as well because like I've had so many people like yourself, like Liv, like Liv Little, like my friend Boston, like Nelson, to just chat this even Simeon like. 
I feel, I feel like I'm name dropping, but I'm like, oh, no, oh my God, I have all these important friends. <laughs> Simeon Brown. I've just had all these people that have just been like really helping me with the journey. And it's been just It's like, a steep learning curve. Amazing. It is a yeah, steep learning yeah. curve. And like, I think at first when it was all done, I had a bit of a like, oh God, like I have to do all this work and admin. But as you said, it's a blessing and a privilege to- Definitely. To be able to do that. I want to actually switch topic entirely and talk about something else. Not home ownership, oh, but careers. <laughs> yes. Oh, good, you, good. <laughs> what do you think I was going to ask? I know what you I thought, thought I was going to ask. I know what you thought I was going to ask you. Not that. I want to talk about careers. Just because a while ago, I listened to an interview you gave, a podcast interview. It was Cressida Bonus's Fear Itself. Mm. And I was so fascinated because you talked about having this fear of peaking too soon career-wise. Yes. And that's a sentiment that you've expressed to me in the past. Well, I think maybe I brought it up with you, but I was just really, really surprised to hear that because honestly, of all the career anxieties I've ever felt, and there have been a lot, that just isn't what I relate to at all. So Mm. what do you mean by that? Like, why do you have a fear of peaking too soon? What does that even mean? You know, I think I feel it less so now because I think I'm finding my or have maybe let's see if I'm here in a few five years saying the same thing like I feel like I've found potentially my stride with like what I'm doing and what I want to be doing and like leaning into what I know I'm good at but I think the reason I'm always concerned about peaking too soon is I've started to really deep it and I think part of it is cultural because we really live in like such a terrible like immediate culture I mean we're both like Forbes 30 under 30 honorees right and it's like that whole culture of it being like it's that is so that thing that once you get on it it's, you're like I'm not you sure, realize mate. how meaningless it is honestly <laughs> like, I, I wanted to now. be on that list so badly mate. honestly like right from when I was in my early 20s and then right? I got on it and but I was who like, doesn't mm. Okay. But that's the thing, like, I'm I'm grateful to be on it. I'm like, oh, I'm sure it's opened some doors. I'm sure it will continue to. And I truly am grateful. But I feel like the concept of, like, it definitely applies a pressure, like, to be like, okay, I am this rising star and, you know, I am relevant and I'm current and whatever. And that's just not how I work. Like, I've always struggled mm. with basically this new type of journalism, like journalism, which is very much when I came up, you know, I was at Viewpoint News at ITN and it was very, very quick turnaround. And we had such a fucking sick and talented team who were like, literally, I'm quite unsocial at work, but like really fucked with them heavily. Like they were great. But it used to frustrate me that like, everyone was really amazing. But the pressure was like, you've got to do this now. You've got to like, you know, something happened. What do you think about it? And it's like, I'm a Libra. I don't know. I'm on my fence. Like I'm trying to work it out. Do you know what I mean? I genuinely don't know what I think. And it's like, I've always been a bit like of a long read, slow response time type of person. And this is why I say I think my opinions changed slightly because now I feel like I have set myself up slightly more in a way where I don't have to comment on everything and I can take my time and be more reasoned. But I was concerned because it felt like it's weird. At school, I'm born in September. So I was always like one of the oldest. But like, once I graduated, I was always the youngest person in the newsroom. I was always like the only black person. I was always like one of few women. And you did very impressive things very early on. Like how old were you when you got the Slay in Your Lane book deal? You were like, how old? 23. Elizabeth was 22, child. Like we were babies. Like, can you imagine? It was so mad. Like we were so young. That's been a long time. It's been a long time. It was 2015 that we came up with the idea. Like 2016 that, you know, we got the deal. And like, I was doing like, mate, I was doing Channel 4 News. I was doing like columns, all this stuff. And I was really young. And I was like, 
I think, I mean, I'm always saying that, like, hmm, as you know, bimbo, I've got a lot to learn. I don't think that I know everything by any means. So I'm always in this constant state of growth. I'm always very excited by the prospect of growing older. Like, it doesn't scare me. I'm very much like, I may, I had a really, well, have a, thank God, very glamorous grandmother who, like, my <laughs> nana, who does not let me call her grandma because she does it. Ages me, call me nana. She's so glam. She's like Peggy Mitchell. Like, <laughs> she's just fur coats and cruises and she's always well, that is literally see, like, what i aspire to so listen much. you would love her and she looks exactly like me like she's literally just this like <laughs> buff older woman that's just got her furs and her rings and she's just so glam and like she lives life to the fullest and so i've never seen being old as like a bad thing like i've always been oh wisdom but i think the culture we're in very much is obsessed with youth and first yeah. sotega like we've discussed this where it's like people are so uncomfortable with giving credit where it's due to people who've come before them because we've got this culture now where it's like i was the first to do this i was the youngest and the first black to do this and me and you i know we're very like comfortable in doing like yeah this person came before me shouts to them but like there is a culture of it being like we are so fixated on being first that that sometimes we don't give people that came before our flat their flowers. So for me, I'm like, I've always been concerned with peaking too soon because I think the culture very much like facilitates this idea of like And they want to discard you. Like after a right. while, so they're looking for the new thing. It's like it's not necessarily about it. you not necessarily getting any better. It's about after right. you've had your couple of years in the, you know, spotlight, they're like, okay, yes, let's sir. move on to the next thing. And you know, I, I'm sure you told me, I hope you don't mind me saying, but like there was an opportunity that you were sort of put forward for and yes. then they told you you were too old and you were 28. I was 28. <laughs> 28 year old me, milk teeth. I'm sure they're still there somewhere <laughs> in the back. I was like, honey, like what? Like it's so mad and it's crazy as well because like, you'll know in certain context, I'm doing hello fellow kids mate. But then in other <laughs> contexts, right? Because we're doing up these panels. In most like, contexts, let's be young. honest. You're an old yes. lady at heart. Like I'm an auntie. I've been yeah. saying I'm an auntie. But it's just like the circles that we move in and the work that we do, often we are still like, so, like when I do these judging panels, right? Like mm. I'm always the youngest person. All, by a minimum, 10 years. Like the yeah. next person is 40 something. And I'm looking at these people's careers and especially I think social media, not to go on a whole social media rant, but like, you know, like there is just that thing of like constant renewal and like, oh, you know, this is happening right now. And like, I look at obviously like the people that I've worked with in certain newsrooms and stuff and their careers and these people have been around for decades. Like they have just been doing the same thing very quietly. And I feel like, you know, my friend always talks about the phrase viral and she's always like something being viral by its very nature means that it like spreads really quickly and then dies out re as fast kind of thing. That's what like it's about. And this is coronavirus. Just... Sorry, oh, I Oh, and then you're in for the long I'm haul. Sorry, honey. I couldn't resist. That was just, <laughs> how I was like, what virus that is? The... I'm sorry, but how on, it, was, it was right Can there. You not oh, wait no, no, no. For... <laughs> You not wait let, for this, not in the throes of it, and you're coming, let, you, let lockdown lift, Jerry. I'll let you land. Sorry, carry on. You were saying let lockdown lift. I'm I'm sick. I can't believe it. But yeah, like <laughs> by its very nature, it's not something that's like you know supposed to be sustained. And like, yeah, I'm all about the long game, sis. And you know this. I'm all about that long game. I'm all about like legacy things. And I'm not trying to be some one hit wonder. And I'm always trying to pivot and see what's next and grow. Yeah. And I just think. I just wanted to stay in that bag. So I guess I was like, oh, I hope I'm not like, here's this pretty young thing. She's 26. And then as soon as I hit 28, it's like, oh, well, <laughs> she's, she's still pretty maybe. She's always pretty, but is she young? <laughs> We're not sure about that. I so yeah, I'm just crying. trying to, <laughs> oh, this is so, I'm so chaotic. <laughs> no, it's honest. And I think you're so right. Like, I think I've never wanted my youth to be like part of the appeal 
of my work, if that makes sense. And definitely right. now, especially once I turned 30, which like you, I was very much looking forward to. I was like, guys, I've mentally been in my 30s for a while, so Sister. I just need my external age I've to catch up. I've been 30 since I was 28, mate. Do you know what I mean? I was like, so I can start Listen. treating people like, you know, they're my juniors. <laughs> I was like, look, I've already been here for a while. But, I'm going to sun everyone. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I was like, oh my God, I literally went for lunch with my auntie the other day. And I was like, now I'm in my 30s. And she was like, how old are you? And I was like, 30. And she was like, girl, if you don't, like, she was like, you, you are not. She, I was so proud of myself. I was like, I'm in my 30s. Um, but what I was going to say is that, especially now, I'm very much thinking about where am I going to be in five, 10 years? I don't necessarily want to be like front facing or public facing. Like the, the work I do now is very much, I am at the heart of it. I'm at the front of it. I'm at the mm. front of my podcast. I'm at the front of, you know, my books. Like it's very much, I think about me, but then I think about other things that I might like to get into, like TV or TV writing. It's like, fine, there are some like sort of celebrity and known TV writers, but for the most part, it's an industry where you don't know the vast majority of the people who work in it. The same thing with production, the same thing, you know, with certain elements of broadcast. And I think it's just really healthy to think about that um, and, and different things. Also, I'm like, how many more books do I have left in me? <laughs> I'm like, you say that, you. girl. I know. I've said that after every book because I'm. But then like, poor I'm bitch not, and never are looking at you funny. Them, them shoes. That sh- <laughs> that shoe are looking Literally, at you. Literally, they email funny. me, be like, "You left this in your basket," and I'm like, "Okay, let me write. Let me write another proposal. Let's just cheeky. <laughs> let me fling something out. Oh my god, this episode <laughs> has been. <laughs> chaotic I cannot I'm living let me finish let's try and add some grace some finesse back into it I want to finish with a quick rapid fire round so I mean you can go long on the questions if you want but try and keep it short and sweet first question I'm actually very curious about this one how often do you check your bank balance at least let's say twice a day (gasps) what you (laughs) check your bank balance (laughs) what is that not I do not check my bank balance. Are you joking? No, because I have notifications set up so that every time... You've forgotten the price of milk, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) When you're that rich. You will... No. (laughs) You will not kill me today. I don't check my bank balance because I don't like to... I don't like to look in there. Oh my God. You want peace? You choose peace. Nah, honey. I'm ready to fight my demons. I'm like, get me at ya. Come on. No, but what I will say as well... This is a mess. What I will say is, I think over the years, I've become so good at regulating my spending that I don't need to check my bank balance. (laughs) (laughs) The way I'm, if you see my face, I'm doing "Mm, interesting. (laughs) Um, Let's move on from this question because you're actually embarrassing me on my own podcast. Next question When was the last time you did something just for the money? (laughs) Oh, hmm. I'm like, wait, let me check my emails this morning. Every I, goddamn day. Babe, I'm not even joking. I know you don't want to work. No, I'm joking. What babe, was <laughs> I'm looking at the time, yeah. If it's 12.50, then let's say 12 o'clock. Because I'm telling you, whatever my last email was, it was definitely for money. Because I'm like, honey, I am. I got a mortgage. So everybody, <laughs> I keep saying, you, how many times I say to you, if you catch me doing up hashtag Heinz beans, everybody better leave me alone. I don't even eat Heinz beans. No, I'm joking. I'll never go that far. But listen, I be doing things for the money because we're blessed to have a job where it's like 
oh my god it's a hobby like it's so incredible you get paid to do this shit but simultaneously it's a job do you know what I mean so 10 minutes ago (laughs) yeah okay all right fair enough what is the best money decision you've ever made okay aside from buying a flat I would say getting laser eye surgery lord god yes man because that was like a couple of grand but it's just changed my life like I really can be seeing. I'm like, wow, so you guys were just seeing raw. Like, this is how people live. They're just opening their eyes and they can see. Wow. Wow. I'm probably saving money in contact lenses because every Absolutely. time I re on contact lenses, it is expensive. And I've been wearing 100%. them since I was 16. So I've definitely spent over two grand on contact lenses. Oh my God. I will tell you the story later, but I didn't realise that I needed glasses to ask 13 because my arrogance no. of thinking... Because I am the main character and I truly said... If I can't see, nobody can see. So I truly, it was David Blaine in London in the box. And my parents were going, oh, look, waving at David Blaine. And I was like, there is nobody in that damn box. No. And then they went, you want me to read the license plate in front of you? I was doing Q64, they were doing 189. <laughs> They're like, she's blind. I did not know because I truly thought nobody could see the whiteboard in class. Because I thought, well, if so it's hard. happening to me... Then oh it's happening God. to everyone. I'm crazy. So. But the way that I, I got glasses when I was six, but literally because I was in class. And also I'm grateful to whatever teacher spotted it. But like, I think she just spotted that I was squinting or that like my maths or sums weren't as good when I was sitting at the back of the class. When I sat up front, I could do everything. And then she just clocked and she was like, you need glasses and told my parents. I and cannot. Did and yeah. Oh my so God. My parents, my, everyone else wore glasses. Like my Yen wears glasses, my older sister, my dad wears glasses. My mum wore reason glasses. Jinka, my little sister had like perfect eyesight. I thought eh, I'm a little bit rusty, but surely, like I used to think the white broad was black. I don't know how crazy. I thought, oh, it's just because I'm sitting at the back. But people at the back could see. So I just thought, let me just copy who's sitting next to me, see what, what questions they're writing oh. down. But this is what happens when you're so self-involved. So I truly thought, well, if it's happening to me, then everybody can't see. So I was just about to say the arrogance. <laughs> the arrogance. Next question. What is the most expensive thing you've ever bought apart from your house? Oh my God. Ah. Confess. 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 Tell the that- truth and shame the devil. Confess. Ah. You know I'll what? know if you're lying. You're damn well no. Okay, so I think it's my laser eye surgery which I'm very happy. I think it pips, uh, it's pipped a bag to the post. <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm like, I've got a bag which is just under that. And I'm going, you know what? Laser eye surgery it is. <laughs> Where's the bag from? Mm-hmm. Huh? Oh my God, the line's funny. I'm oh, sorry. What? <laughs> I, won't, I won't put you Baby, it's a Chanel. What oh, about it? I'm going for my damn self. Y'all seen it. I make sure I everybody say, sees we've it. We've seen that goddamn Chanel posted that up goddamn Chanel. so um okay more serious question is this where you thought you'd be financially at this point in your life say 10 years ago definitely not but it's exactly what I hoped exactly what I hoped which was that I'd be able to buy things I like and also be able to buy things that I needed and things that like I felt were important such as like because obviously when it comes to money I like nice things but simultaneously you know this with so we're so similar in our approaches that like we like nice stuff so we make sure we, we're not ever going to sacrifice things that matter in order to mm. get nice things that's never mm-hmm. gonna happen because you've yeah. got your flat your bills are paid and on top of that you got a little money for that Versace skirt with the pin that I see <laughs> yes I know you know the one I'm talking about you you know what I mean then you've got it and that's the thing is I prayed I'd be in this position I wasn't sure but I went without and that's another thing we've spoken about where we've spoken about when you said I didn't have Uber so I was like yeah in my I did mid-20s, not Uber baby 
well Netflix. after the fact. I didn't have Spotify. Same with I was Netflix. Still doing same fucking with illegal downloads. Exactly because I only we really started. I only really started using delivery during the pandemic. To be perfectly honest, them ones like literally like all these little things that like people take for granted in terms of like Ubers and just like streaming services. I literally did not have any of them things because I was saving. Like a loan shock was coming for me. I was moving so mad. Like do you know what I mean? So now I didn't think I'd be there to be honest, but. Like, I really, this is exactly, I mean, not exactly, because hmm, if anybody wants to PayPal me, sorry, <laughs> I'm not exactly where I want to be, but you know The Nigerian jumped out. Okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to put Yomi's email in the show notes. You guys can <laughs> PayPal her some money. And my very last question, what are your financial goals for the future? Oh, you know what? My financial goals are actually probably more like psychological goals in many ways, because I, mm. Really hope, honestly, that I can learn to enjoy money in a healthy way and not feel anxious. Because at the moment, for the first time since in 15 years, I'm not saving. For the first time, because I can't. <laughs> right, not bitch. 15, 10, like 10, since I was like 21. But that's a yeah, long same. time, a decade, a babe. It's not like, you know what I mean? It's the first time I've not, I'm actively not saving because I'm like trying to do things. I'm like, I need to spend money on this thing. And it just feels like I have to really get comfortable with the idea of like, Yomi, if your savings go below this balance, you actually aren't going to die. I find myself Googling like average savings all the time to remind myself like, you know what? You're calm. Like stop being a fucking nut job. Like, so honestly, my financial goals are really more about me just getting a healthy relationship with money because people say, oh my God, it's great to be addicted to savings, which I mean, they're worse addictions. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not crack, so fair enough. But I'm like, when it comes to, (laughs) when it comes down to it, it's stress. And I want to, whilst it's just me, I can deal with my own neuroses and madness. But like when I'm older, family, things, I don't want my children to like, I don't want to be passing down this madness to them. I want them to live normally with money and just feel free. So I'm trying to get out of that headspace. That's where I'm at. Oh man, I absolutely love that for you. That is, yeah. Thank you, girl. And you too. I feel the same. And I love you. I love you too. Thank you so much. I know you're a busy girl. Not even at the moment, just all the time. So thank you so much Listen. for making the time. This has been lit. A mess. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit it. so much of this shit out. But it's I know. Cool, it's all, <laughs> all right, I'll let you go. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegauagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you next week.